Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad you could join us today. I know what's on your mind, America. You're starting to think about the holidays, and we're going to be buying stuff to include food. And when we get out there into the grocery store, we start looking for things like fair trade labels because a lot of consumers, more and more of us, really understand what that's supposed to mean, and they understand that that's something that they want. They want to support um, all of those principles of fair trade with their dollars. So before you start making your grocery list for Thanksgiving and and all the other holidays coming up, I want you to listen to our guest today. We have Anna Canning from the Fair World Project, and she's going to be telling us why a label you might see on some of your dairy products uh, from Fairtrade USA may not be what you think it is. There are actually 30 or more labor human rights and food justice organizations that have signed a statement in opposition to Fairtrade USA's Fair Trade Certified Dairy um, label. And so we're going to talk through this with Anna, and I'm so excited to, to have her on the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Anna. Glad you're here. Hey, Jill. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. Well, um, thank yeah, you so- for being with us. Uh, we yeah. are glad to have you. And before we dive into the topic at hand, I'd really love to give you a chance to tell our listeners about your organization, Fair World Project and some of the work that you do for that organization. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm the campaigns manager at Fair World Project. And a lot of what we do is to act as a watchdog of ethical labels, especially those that make like fair trade or other claims about protecting people. And so, you know, that means that a lot of our work is about debunking false solutions, um, sort of fake things that are too good to be true, greenwashing, that kind of stuff. But then also really lifting up the work of people who are really leading on making meaningful change. And one of my favorite ways that I get to do that is through our podcast, For a Better World, where we talk to people who are really like leading that kind of change that you might want to support. So all of our episodes kind of end with like a, a place where you could take another step and support and get involved. I love that. And I love the name of it, A Better World. Isn't that what we all want? I mean, so that is so, so super cool, Anna. And thanks again for taking time to be with us. Now, to help our listeners understand what a fair trade label is supposed to mean, because sometimes you could ask 10 people what this fair trade label means they'll give you 12 different answers. (laughs) So when we see it on a product, you know, talk to us about what it's supposed to mean. What are the principles of fair trade? Oh my gosh, that's so true what you say. Not only are there so many different definitions that different people might have, there's also different labels that maybe have some different values behind them. So, you know, on our website, we actually have like a little chart that kind of breaks some of that down. But, you know, I would say as far as what's behind the label, like fair trade as we know it has a few different origin stories. But the one that I'm closest with, because I spent a lot of my time actually working in coffee, was, you know, that fair trade started out as a movement of small scale farmers really closely aligned with Latin American coffee cooperatives. 
And those farmers wanted a way out of the super exploitative commodity market that they were trapped in, uh, you know, where like the price of coffee would just plummet miles below the cost of actual production. And the farmers had no connection to it, no ability to change that. So they actually developed solidarity relationships with buyers in the U.S. and Europe. And the real original principles behind that were things like fair prices, um, supporting democratic institutions like cooperatives, and cutting out extra middlemen so the farmers actually got more of the value of their product that they were selling. And then a lot of those cooperatives were really involved in other sorts of like community organizing and development work from schools to processing infrastructure to, you know, like real political education and kind of bringing their members along in a whole vision for a different system of trade and power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fair trade labels kind of developed so those small scale farmers could di- differentiate their products from those in the mainstream market. You know, in the world of coffee, that was about like differentiating from big plantations that had much greater economies of scale yeah. and were also really tied to like the whole exploitative colonial context of those economies. So, well, the principles and values of that movement still exist. I think fair trade has also gotten really common as kind of a shorthand for part of a company's whole corporate social responsibility programming. Yeah. And so, you know, instead of talking about like a whole alternative model, a lot of times what you see pitched as fair trade is a lot more about like claims to sort of slightly improve the status quo. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and I actually had uh, one of your colleagues, Dana, on, and we, we talked through this, uh, I think it was last year. I don't know. My COVID memory is <laughs> all messed up. Pandemic time, what is exactly, it? Exactly. <laughs> I know. But, but, you know, these are the things that I think it's really good for us to get straight in our minds as we start talking about what's going on with Fairtrade USA's Fair Trade Certified Dairy Standard, because it's not just the standard itself that matters. It's the process by which the standard was created. And I'd love for you to kind of talk us through what their process was. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is like getting into a technical place, but I'll try to keep it fun. Um, So, you know, this standard that exists, it's an adaptation of, you know, their general, what they call agricultural production standard. And that's the rules that you know, back the labels for things like coffee, chocolate, tomatoes, all of that. And so back in the summer of 2019, Fairtrade USA announced that they would be working with the big yogurt company, Chobani, to test out a new Fairtrade standard for dairy. And, you know, as part of that, they would be testing out the standard on farms. And then they would also be talking to you know, the so-called stakeholders of the process. So business whole business people, farmers, apparently some workers. Although I think it's really important to note that the people who were most prominent organizing farm workers in that supply chain were not in the lead in those conversations. That, you know, I've talked to them and like they gave their apparent input in what they mm-hmm. thought was like an informal meeting off the side of another conference. So yeah. You know, that's really not what I think of as a worker-led, like, democratic process. 
Exactly. And and so, you know, knowing who was involved in the process and who wasn't involved in the process, what's your assessment of, you know, the way in which this standard came came to be? Talk to us a little bit about maybe you know, how it might have been done a little bit better, um, what you're used to seeing in terms of a fair trade label process. Any comments on that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when when that standard was piloted, like, honestly, uh, we, we, along with like 35-ish labor and human rights groups, as you mentioned in your intro, came out with a statement. And we honestly called it a sham process because it really felt like folks were being asked to give input into something that was really already happening. Mm. And I think the really important context here is that all of this happened after those workers on farms selling to Chobani had been calling on Chobani to negotiate and support their calls for better conditions for years. Mm. That there's a group that, you know, I'm in communication with all the time called Workers Center of Central New York. And they co-authored a report called Milked, documenting just (laughs) how awful the conditions were on those farms. And, you know, like people are, were and still are getting injured on dairy farms all the time. It's dangerous work. Like cows are big. There's like toxic chemicals involved. Uh, they're working like 12 to 14 hour days and not getting paid fairly for it. So they wrote this report. They brought their demands to Chobani's door and Chobani then stopped negotiating with them. And so it's like within that context, you know, instead of negotiating with workers, Chobani went to Fairtrade USA and they developed a program really without those people's input. And And I remember something that Dana told me. She said, you know, one of the biggest kind of, I won't say battle cries, but mottos of the fair trade movement is nothing about us without us. And, you know, that's kind of one of those pillars of truth that, you know, we kind of hang on to that we hope that when a fair trade standard is set or a label is developed, um, that the people impacted, um, the workers are are part of that. And, you know, I, I, you wrote a great article for the, your, on your website. Um, and you said that, um, that Fair Trade USA claims that it is backed by a rigorous, this standard is backed by a rigorous 200 point checklist of social, labor, and environmental criteria. But talk to us about some of the, I don't know, some of the problems, I guess, with this checklist, particularly as it relates to both environmental and worker protection issues. Yeah, sure. So that, I mean, <laughs> One of the first red flags for me about that checklist is the standard for this label actually has like this little footnote at the bottom that says, well, this entire section of environmental criteria that we talk about for fair trade with other products eh, doesn't apply to dairy. And that's huge because industrial scale dairy has massive environmental issues. Like in my home state of Oregon, like folks are fighting against that all the time. So it's not like it's not needed. Um, 
And then, you know, on the worker protection front, I think it's really important to note, like, it's a model that was initially developed to protect the interests of small-scale coffee farmer co-ops. It's not designed or equipped to protect the rights of workers in a really different context. Uh, And, you know, like, small coffee farms like that, usually most of the labor is, like, family labor. They're not hiring a lot of people. So there's actually, like, an exemption written into the standards for farms with fewer than six workers, that those standards are, you know, non-mandatory, like, quote unquote, best practices. But what that means in the dairy industry is that a farmer with hundreds of cows and producing as much as 1.5 million gallons of milk per year can just slide right on through and all these standards don't apply because it was written for, you know, like a context with maybe cocoa farmers who earn less than a dollar a day and are just using family labor. So to that extent, you know, that exemption is a massive loophole and really undermines claims of focusing on workers' safety or rights. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I want to get back to this in just a sec, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So everybody stay put, hang with us. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. As you start to do your holiday food shopping, you may notice that there is a fair trade label of some kind on some of your dairy products. And we want you to know uh, a little bit about that. And we want you to know why there are quite a few organizations who are opposed um, to Fair Trade USA's uh, 
fair trade certified dairy label. And we want to talk to you about that and make sure that you are a well-educated dairy consumer, if you are a dairy consumer. And we are talking with Anna Canning today. She is with the Fair World Project. You can easily find their website at fairworldproject.org. So Anna, we've been diving in deep to this issue. um, And I want to ask, why do you believe that, um, you know, and this was part of your article, so I'm quoting your article about this uh, new label. Um, You said that this fair trade label is more of a marketing exercise than a program intended to protect workers' rights or transparency. Talk to us more about that concept. Why do you believe that's true? Yeah, for sure. So Chobani launched their tubs of, you know, fair trade yogurt back in early April of this year. But the final standards to back what that label even means didn't come out until July. So it was marketing before standards all the way from the start. And even now, like when I talk to worker organizers, the workers on farms that are participating in the program, like on farms where there are farmers in Chobani ads saying that they're participating in the program, those workers don't know anything about fair trade. Like, you know, organizers are asking them, so what's going on new with this fair trade thing? And they're like, what fair trade? What is that? And they continue to work in dangerous conditions, substandard housing, like all of the stuff that was going on before is still happening. So, you know, like, yeah, change takes time, but this program is all in talking about how it's fair, but at the same time, the people who are supposed to be benefiting are not getting benefits and they don't even know that they're supposed to be. And, you know, really, like, I think it comes down to that for me. Like, if you don't know what your rights are supposed to be, there's no way you can advocate for them or like try to get them. And meanwhile, like the marketing machine is going on. Yeah, that's such a great point. And we we touched on this lightly in the last segment, but I want to expand on this a, a lot more because, you know, you talked about how Chobani yogurt was able to reach the Fair Trade USA's certified dairy label for their packaging while they were still in the midst of an ongoing labor dispute. For the everyday American, they may not realize why that is so significant. So help us understand why that is such a big deal. Yeah. And I think right now, like we just wrapped up the month that, you know, CNN just had a story on like striketober. I think now is like a really great time to be having that conversation and what that means. You know, So in the case of this fair trade uh, dairy and Chobani supply chain, you know, conditions on those farms were bad enough that workers were willing to risk their jobs and at least in a few cases actually lose their jobs to take a stand for better working conditions. And those workers were making and, you know, still are making demands of Chobani to negotiate with them. They have a solution for improving their conditions. It's just that the company is choosing to ignore them. And in the midst of that, like Fair Trade USA just comes in and like puts a label on it and says all's fair. And, you know, I think at the heart of it, right, like we're in this whole moment where we see all these people like organizing for better conditions. Like back in September when we saw the Nabisco strike, and I just mentioned, you know, like striketober, lots of people organizing and having strikes all throughout the U.S., you see these people coming together and withholding their labor to win changes in their workplace. And the public hearing their stories and supporting them, like Danny DeVito coming out and saying, no contract, no strikes in favor of Nabisco workers. And then those workers won their contract. Like, 
that really gives us a model for action, I think. You know, when other people are saying, like, hey, this job is really inhumane, all of us, you know, working any kind of job can support them and back their demands and echo them. But, you know, to go to those workers and say, nah, like 12 hour shifts, that's fine. The fact mm-hmm. that you don't have gloves to handle toxic chemicals, that's fair. You know, that's essentially what's happening here is Fair Trade USA is just like putting a sticker on that package saying, you know, it's fine. It's fair. Nothing to see here, folks. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really the heart of this certification in the midst of a labor dispute. Mm-hmm. And again, I go back to <clears throat> what we talked about at the very beginning, that we have over 30 organizations in opposition to this label. Um, and, and they are primarily, I mean, there's a lot of different ones, but the, you know, there's labor organizations, you've got um, human rights organizations and food justice organizations all saying this label isn't what you think it is. Now, your article mentioned a growing body of research confirming that annual audits and corporate social responsibility programming alone are inadequate to protect workers' rights. And I'd love for you to educate our listeners on that growing body of research and talk to us more about that. Yeah, sure. It sounds so funny when you hear things you've written like in a formal report than in conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, people have been pointing this out for a while that, you know, having an inspector come through once a year and check things out isn't adequate. I mean, if you've ever worked food service, I feel like you kind of know this, right? Like there's this rush when the health inspector is coming and you're like, button it down, folks. Yeah, mop the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Don't set that on the floor now. Uh, But, you know, last year there was a 200 page report that came out from an organization called MSI Integrity. And they did a 10 year study and it really concluded that the most important component for protecting workers' rights is the actual involvement and leadership of the people who a program is supposed to be protecting. In that case, you know, that would be these dairy farm workers that we're talking about, right? And so other researchers have also pointed out that, you know, the most important thing that certification labels could do to improve worker livelihoods would be to support worker organizing and require that workers under a program earn living wages. And this fair trade dairy label, we see almost the exact opposite of all of that. There's no worker leadership. There's actually like worker opposition. And there's no requirement for living wages. The standard just says like pay the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some alternatives? I mean, let's imagine uh, besides, you know, evidence that that workers are organized and they're having routine meetings. What are some alternatives to annual audits and CSR programming? Because I know that, you know, there there are companies out there that would really like to do a better job. They want to be good, you know, social citizens of, of our country and our world. Mm-hmm. Instead of relying upon what they've been sold as a you know, a, a reasonable process, annual audits and CSR programming, what what would be some alternatives? What could we imagine that would be superior to that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, if we're talking to companies, I would first off say, like, pay a living 
income pay a fair price that actually covers the real deal cost of production for whatever your product is. And like, let's just start with that as a starting point. Um, you know, but as far as like workers' rights protection specifically, I think the real key here is that organized workers are the best offenders of their own rights. Like I've had lousy jobs in my day, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, <laughs> you know, in that moment, like if some stranger had like come in and been like, all right, I'm here for an audit. What are your working conditions? Is your boss fair? Are you safe at work? Like I wouldn't have trusted them in that yeah. scenario that I could speak freely and I wouldn't get in trouble or that it would make a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's about creating the conditions that where people are supported to come together at work and they know that they won't get in trouble if they speak up, if they have a safe way to get an outside party involved, if they feel like they need it. And, you know, if that's there like every day of the week, I think those are the conditions where we can see real change happening. But, you know, first and foremost, I would just come back to like, pay the real price, well, the fair price for And, and, and honestly, yeah, you know, I grew up um, in a union family. My dad was a coal miner and they got mm. paid well, but they uh -huh. were unsafe as the day is long. Uh, right. There were mine cave-ins. So all the money in the world didn't help when the roof caved in and somebody got crushed under yep. a two-ton rock. So, you know, there's lots to this. And I think, you yeah. know, so there's nothing like a good old surprise inspection. I was in the military. I was a naval officer. And so, you know, creating conditions where, you know, it's not um, a scheduled audit. It's not a scheduled program. My husband's a senior vice president of supply chain. He does this all the time with his suppliers. You know, he doesn't always announce when he's showing up. And so there's there's lots of ways that companies can do this in their supply chain, I think. Uh, you know, I'd love for you to tell us more about this program called Milk with Dignity um, and some of the brands that are using that standard. Yeah, sure. So Milk with Dignity is a worker-led program out of Vermont, and they're taking some of those practices that I was just talking about, you know, improving conditions for workers and then writing those conditions and the kind of the guidelines for those conditions into contracts that worker representatives sign with a brand. So Ben and Jerry's is, you know, a brand that's working with them. And those contracts say, you know, if you want to sell to Ben and Jerry's, meet these terms and Ben and Jerry's will provide the money to do the improvements. You know, we're talking about like better wages, housing, all of that. And then they also have a 27 of that. 27, 24-7 support line to help people work through any issues that come up. And like an annual audit is a component of that, but it's not like everything hanging on that. So, you know, I would definitely encourage folks to look up Milk with Dignity, that they have a big campaign going on right now to actually get Hannaford supermarkets in the Northeast to join their program. And uh, on our podcast, we actually just released an interview with uh, one of the organizers this week. So definitely cool. look up for a better world podcast to hear more about that. Very cool. Very cool. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about with Anna Canning from the fair world project. So don't go away folks. There's more go green radio right after this. News. Opinion. 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 
hear me. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are talking with Anna Canning, and she is with the Fair World Project. We're talking about a fair trade label that's fairly new. Um, it's out of Fair Trade USA, and it's a it's called the Fair Trade Certified Dairy Label, and it's actually a pretty controversial label because there's quite a few organizations who oppose it, over 30 organizations oppose it. And those organizations range from labor organizations, human rights uh, organizations, and food justice organizations. So um, something's definitely up when you have all of those folks um, in uh, in opposition to what you're doing. Now, you know, Anna, we talked uh, just a smidge about this during the last segment, but there are people uh, usually people who get to, you know, work at a computer all day, and they really believe that U.S. and state labor laws are adequate in protecting workers' safety and rights. But I'd like for you to talk to us about some of the conditions that dairy workers face that make it necessary to create higher standards for workers. Yeah, sure. I think you're exactly right that like, if you've worked at a computer your, all your life, or maybe most of your family does, you don't realize, but U.S. labor law actually has some really gaping exemptions carved out for farm workers and then actually uh, restaurant workers as well. Uh, and, you know, little history lesson here, a lot of the things that we think about as kind of standard labor law at this point in the country come out of um 
like the New Deal era. And at that time, um, as they were negotiating those laws, there were, you know, the majority of farm workers in the U.S. were um, black farm workers, largely, you know, the South was a big agricultural area. And so those landowners were super powerful and um, their representatives got written into labor law that those workers would be exempt from um, the federal minimum wage overtime protections, uh, protections around organizing. Uh, so over time, you know, farm workers have organized and actually gotten some better uh, minimum wage protections. But in most states, farm workers are still exempt from overtime protections and they work super long hours um, and organizing protections. So, you know, like, if I went and talked to my coworkers about like, hey, let's get better wages and, you know, deal with this safety situation on the job, that is something I couldn't be fired for doing. Or if I was like, that would be illegal. That isn't the case for um, farm workers in a lot of states. Actually, New York is kind of a different. The group that is Worker Center of Central New York, who's been organizing within Shabani's supply chain, they actually won a huge victory a couple years back and won um, a requirement for overtime pay uh, after 60 hours of work actually is like the compromise for farm workers when, you know, for most of wow. other workers, that's like 40 hours, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, they also won um, organizing protections, which is like one of the big things that's at stake in this whole scenario. So, you know, the other and it's not as much a thing in this scenario or this case right now, but like the U.S. actually still has laws on the books that are that lower child labor requirements for yeah. uh, farm workers as well. So I think we should be really uh, aware that there's a real long history of power and um, frankly, racism in this country that has really shaped the laws that farm workers experience that are different from mm -hmm. the laws that, you know, people who work other jobs face. So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think there's, there's a lot of room for improvement there. There sure is. <laughs> there sure is. Now, what can our listeners do to have an impact both on the Fair Trade USA dairy standard and, and also to patronize companies who do the very best job of adhering to truly fair trade principles? Give our listeners some call to action here. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, first off, I would say like Workers Center of Central New York, like look them up, support their work, give them that little extra that you might have spent on fair trade dairy to support their organizing. Um, I, I always encourage people like if there's worker organizing happening in your town, like support them for sure. Um, and, you know, then if you're thinking about like, how can I find something that's like really in line with some of those early fair trade principles that I was talking about Um we have a whole list on our website called Mission Driven Brands. And those are companies that are like really working to gear their whole business around principles of, you know, putting people on the planet first for every day and for all of their selections. So I would totally encourage people to check that out as you're thinking about 
you know, holiday food prep, holiday mm-hmm. gifting, any of that. Awesome. Awesome. And again, fairworldproject.org. That's your repository, folks. That's where you go. Um, They have a lot of great information. Now, Fair World Project does a lot of work on food issues beyond dairy. And I'd like to give you a chance to talk about some of the work you're doing there. Um, You have a great campaign that you've been working on to end child labor in cocoa. And okay, besides you know, my, my love for sweets. I mean, it's really about the chocolate. I do love chocolate. So I want to know more about this so that I can be a great consumer. Um, so talk to us about your campaign to end child labor in cocoa. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, cocoa is, oh my gosh, like we could have done an entire segment on cocoa, Um, (laughs) but the majority of the world's cocoa is produced in West Africa and farmers there, you know, earn on average less than a dollar a day um, based on their cocoa sales. The cocoa prices are really far below the cost of production. And, you know, earlier, I I appreciate how you kind of called me out a little bit on saying like all the money in the world wouldn't have fixed the problems in the mines. And that's totally true. But I think in cocoa, what we see is people are earning so very little for that cocoa that it's really driving like all kinds of abuses there. So you see like farmers in an effort to grow more cocoa and like try to eke out some kind of a livelihood, they're expanding into like national parks that's driving deforestation. Uh, Farmers can't afford to like hire adult laborers. So child labor is a problem. And so you see like all of these abuses really falling out from the fact that like chocolate companies aren't paying fair prices or aren't paying um, technically a living income is the phrase that we use a lot for that in human rights circles. So we're, you know, part of various coalitions that are really calling on chocolate companies to step up and as a first step, really like pay a living income mm-hmm. for chocolate. And actually the first season of our podcast, we really get into like all of these other issues within chocolate and kind of a holistic picture for some of the solutions that are needed. But, you know, I would really say chocolate is a place that there are some you know, it's a complex problem, but there are some really clear things Mm -hmm. that cocoa companies can do. Mm -hmm. And the big chocolate companies have really been letting themselves off the hook for way too long. Well, and when you look at what we pay for those chocolate products, in many cases, I mean, there are inexpensive chocolate products, but there are some really pricey ones too. Um, You know, again, we, we need to be paying the, the, fair price for what it really takes for people to produce those things. And so I'm glad that you guys are involved in that work. Um, I think that's, I think that's amazing. Um, Tell us about your work to help small scale farmers receive pandemic relief. I didn't even realize that was a problem until I got out on your website. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think last year, like many of us, as the pandemic was really taking off, uh, we were really kind of pivoting to support and lift up 
the initiatives of a lot of folks within the domestic space and the demands of farmer organizations there. And one of the things that we were hearing was like the smallest scale farmers were really struggling to get pandemic relief, that it was going to like some really big farms. But uh, meanwhile, you know, you saw big parts of the industrial excuse me, the industrial supply chain, like really have a bottleneck and be unable to get food through these like massive pipelines. But small scale farmers were pivoting and feeding their communities, but they weren't getting the relief to do that. So we really supported some efforts to do that. And um, then also, you know, did a whole storytelling project, like sharing perspectives perspectives from small-scale farmer groups around the world about what that pandemic looked like for them. And that was really fascinating for me to hear, you know, how that was playing out in Kerala, India versus in Peru and uh, just those different stories. And honestly, you asking about that, I'm like, you know, we should really go back and do another layer of that now that we've had, my goodness, going on two years of pandemic life. I know it, it's hard to believe, but, you know, <laughs> I saw a meme just recently where, you know, we, we see that 2022 is two months away and I'm still trying to process 2020. You know, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. You know, I want to ask an economic question because this is, you know, this is where we kind of meet at a crossroads between the balance uh, between taking care of the farm workers and then also making sure that our low-income families can afford healthy, nutritious food. So, uh, you know, uh, there's some people who think, oh, fair trade labels, that's just for products that only the wealthy and affluent can afford. But how do we make this a movement for people who are at every level of family budgets? Yeah, I think that's... I think that's a really real question to reckon with. Um, and, you know, my first response to a question like that is always that it's really, I think it's a false choice to pit workers against families like that. Like all of us eat and farm workers have a higher rate of food insecurity than people uh, working many other jobs. Um but, you know, instead, I want to point the finger at those companies who really continue to make money off of underpaying for their ingredients. Like we were just talking about cocoa farmers and a cocoa farmer gets it's about six percent of the cost of a chocolate bar and like 45 percent goes to retailers, 45 percent manufacturers give or take. Now I'm trying to do math on the fly. <laughs> um, that never goes well. But, you know, the point stands that these companies could pay more for chocolate, pay fairly for chocolate, and really don't have to pass the price on to the rest, to the people who are buying it. Mm-hmm. Or if well, they did, it would yeah. be like a penny or so. You know, it doesn't have to be that much. And I think there's a whole question about folks in, you know, places inflating the price of a fair trade product in a way that doesn't get back to producers. Yeah. Yeah. I so. think you're right, Anna. Well said. <laughs> well, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we've got lots more. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're talking about such important stuff here. Um, Anna, there is a terrific post on the Fair World Project website that talks about the climate crisis, COP26, and small farmer solutions. And I would love, I know this is like trying to squeeze a watermelon into a Coke bottle, but help us understand the connection between climate change and agriculture. Yeah, sure. So first off, for folks who might not know, um, COP26 is the big UN climate change summit that's happening right now, this week and next week. Um, And so they're talking a lot about climate change. And, you know, at its heart, I think the climate crisis is rooted in the fact that our economy is built on extracting more than our planet can sustain. And that's true of fossil fuels, and that's also true of agriculture. So or industrial agriculture accounts for over a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. And a lot of that comes from industrial ag- um, animal agriculture production. So that's, you know, beef. That's also dairy, like we've been talking about all show. Um, and it's things like, so yeah, the beef production that's really driving that. And I think it's really important when we talk about that to be clear that that's not just about feeding the world. Like a lot of people need a lot of food, but that it's really about unsustainable uh, methods of production that are really reliant on like fossil fuels, chemicals, and like confined feeding operations for animals and massive overproduction of some commodities that like more than anybody actually needs like corn. So, you know, all of that amounting to a third of uh, greenhouse gas emissions globally. And, you know, the wild thing is like, we're talking about the big UN climate summit that's going on and they don't even have a full day dedicated to agriculture. So I think there's really a need for there to be more focus on the role of our food system in creating uh, the climate crisis. And then also the solutions that exist within um our food system to do better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think this is a, another big question and I'm asking you to <laughs> kind of, you know, cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, but 
I'd really love to leave our listeners with some concrete actions that they can take for climate justice and a fair food system. And feel free to explain what a fair food system would look like as well. Um, But give us some tips on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that climate justice is really part of a fair food system. So I think a fair food system would look like one where um, farmers are paid fairly for their products, workers are paid fairly and have decent conditions, all of these things that we've been talking about. And, you know, really that all of that is producing food that people really want to eat and is healthy and nourishing for them and isn't destroying their communities. So, you know, it's hard to just have like a take one action and you will bullet silver bullet solve this problem. But, you know, that's why we're really doing a lot of like sustained storytelling on the For a Better World podcast. And I will plug that again because, you know, we have like places where you can take a concrete action at the end of every episode. So whether it's workers' rights or um, fair payments for farmers. There's so many ways to engage. So I would definitely like subscribe to that, join our email list at fairworldproject.org. And I think we can help walk through that. Like we're doing a whole series actually over on Instagram this week that's kind of addressing exactly these questions of climate justice, food system, and how they all come together because it is a really big topic. It, it really is. Um, and I'm glad that you guys have, you know, a, a podcast and, and so much information on your website, fairworldproject.org, um, to help people sort through these big and, and difficult issues. Um, you know, we have a little more time to, to talk about a powerful line in that post that I was talking about. Uh, there's a line that says commoditizing carbon only enriches wealthy landowners all while incentivizing and rewarding activities that violate human rights like land grabbing and displacing indigenous rural and forest communities from their land. I'd love to have you spend a, a couple minutes talking to us about the connections between commoditizing carbon because everybody's like, Ooh, carbon sequestration. Yay. Let's do that. Let's just do this. Um, and human rights violations. Help us unpack that a little bit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) That is a big topic there. But so um, I think that we've heard a lot about, um, you know, the idea of carbon credits. And that's what the term like commoditizing carbon really means is like this idea that if you do a good thing over here, then you can, that creates a carbon credit that somebody else can then buy and trade um, to then, you know, fix the problems like their massive fossil fuel uh, consumption, for example. And, you know, what we're seeing then is that uh, there's like situations where people are being displaced from their land to then plant uh, trees that are then um, being, like the existence of those trees is then like a carbon credit to offset other things. And, you know, I think we just saw like California this fall that there were those massive wildfires and they burned up some of these like big um, tree plantations that had been planted as an offset. And it's like, well, what happens then? So I think that it's a really, you know, it's a really complicated 
situation, right? Like the climate crisis is urgently asking us to make change in our practices. And there are so many false solutions out there that are like, well, actually, if you could just, you know, do this one thing. And I think we have to really be wary of that, those kinds of solutions that are coming up, um, that it's really like bottom line, We really do need to think about ways to do things that create fewer greenhouse gas emissions and like shuffling things around globally is not the answer. Well, and I think you're, you're so right. I I, I think it's, it's more complicated than any one person, one organization, one country can fix. And you know, that's why it's so important for groups who focus, you know, uh, primarily on certain aspects of this equation, come together and talk this through. Because um, on the one hand, we know that if we continue emitting greenhouse gas emissions without some sort of sequestration um, as part of the solution, besides just lowering our greenhouse gas emissions, um, that that, you know, that, that that isn't going to make a very happy and uh, thriving population of humans, but at the same time, you know, when we're we're so gleeful about things that big ag can do in terms of carbon sequestration and being able to sell carbon credits, and that doesn't translate into a better, more safe, more just work environment for the people who are feeding us, then we we've got a real problem. We've got a real problem and, and we need to, do, we can, and we must do better. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left in the show, Anna, and I want to give you a chance to leave some parting thoughts with our listeners. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> you're, you're right. Like I don't want to leave people feeling disempowered and like they can't do that. There's nothing they can do, you know, that, and I think sometimes the label talk when we're talking about like a fair trade label, it leaves us thinking that our purchases are all that we have, but really we are all so much more than a moment in the grocery store. And so I definitely encourage people like find places to plug in and get involved. We try to have a lot of those and, you know, to what you were just saying about, um, carbon sequestration and trees, you're right that there are also like initiatives. Actually, that blog post that you're talking about was written together with an organization called Grow Ahead, who's working to funnel money to small-scale farmer organizations around the world yep. to support their tree planting projects and their other initiatives I love that are really that. supporting their amazing work not yeah. somebody else. Yeah. So. Anna, I wish we could go on for days because you are awesome. Your organization is awesome. Check them out, fairworldproject.org. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to our listeners for being with us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you-
you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.